The partition of British India in 1947 is one of the defining events of modern history and as its 70th anniversary approaches, the Harvard University South Asia Institute presents a special series of podcasts in which leading scholars explore its continuing impact. Tens of thousands of women were abducted, raped and killed during partition. Catherine Warner, who's a college fellow in the Department of South Asian Studies and the Department of History at Harvard, talks about what happened to many of them during and long after the intense violence they experienced. In the 1946, um, November 1946 session of the Indian National Congress at Merit, um, there was a resolution moved by Rajendra Prasad, um, quote, the Congress views with pain, horror, and anxiety the tragedies of Calcutta, East Bengal, Bihar, and some parts of Merit district. These new developments in communal strife are different from any previous disturbances and have involved murders on a mass scale as also mass conversions, abductions and violation of women, and forcible marriage. Women who have been abducted and forcibly married must be restored to their houses. Mass conversions have no significance or validity, and people must be given every opportunity to return to the life of their choice. Here we see, even before partition, concern with abducted women is related to concern with conversion, the identity of communities defined by religion, and also a particular focus on women who experience violence at the hands of, quote, the other community. Um, so legislation, um, so sort of a formal government policy develops um, soon after partition. Um, in seven, September of 1947, prime ministers of India and Pakistan met in Lahore and issued a joint declaration um, that specified that, um, quote, both the central governments and the governments of East and West Punjab wish to make it clear that forced conversion, conversions and marriages will not be recognized. So, like, they're not going to have legal status. Um, further, that women and girls who have been abducted must be restored to their families, and every effort must be made by the governments and their officers concerned to trace and recover such women and girls. So... The Punjab government set up um, a liaison agency to coordinate the evacuation in the fall of 1947, which were headed by li um, chief liaison officers stationed in Lahore and Amritsar, um, with district liaison officers reporting in. The military evacuation organization, or MEO, was also responsible for moving people and was also involved in the work of recovering women. Um, by, 19, by November 26, 1947, this work of moving people was mostly finished except for people in remote areas, abducted women, converted people, and other people who had not um, been able to um, sort of access these uh, facilities or maybe were too poor to um, uproot easily. Um, the Inter-Dominion Agreement in December of 1947 um, gave executive strength to um, these sorts of ad hoc or bureaucratic arrangements that were made. Um, so it was, and then it was extended into formally into legislation with the Abducted Persons Ordinance and then the Abducted Persons Recovery and Restoration Act um, of 1940, the act was um, passed in 1949. So this legislation defined abducted person as a male child below age of 16 or a female of any age 
who was a Muslim. So this is the Indian legislation and the Pakistan legislation, Pakistani legislation supposedly mirrored this, but I actually haven't seen a, um, um, the actual copy of what was the Pakistani legislation um, in any of the articles I looked at. Um, so anyway, the Indian legislation defined an abducted person as a male child below 16 years of age or a female of any age who was a Muslim before uh, March 1st, 1947 and who was separated from his or her family and found living under a non-Muslim person or family um, or vice versa and includes children born to women after March 1947. So all marriages and conversions after this date were considered to be forced. Um, the police were given power to ser search houses without warrant and to take into custody abducted people, or um, children and women. The violence in Punjab began in March 1947, so um, it's obvious that this legislation pertains basically to Punjab by using March um, as a cutoff date. Um, the act remained in effect until 1957 um, in both, um, for both countries. Pakistan abrogated their act shortly after India did. Um, Bustin and Menon point out that the stipulation regarding male children um, under the age of 16 was to allow the option for women to bring their children uh, born of their abductors to India with them. Um, this meant that basically the governments were concerned, India was concerned with um, Hindu and Sikh women who were abducted and were found to be living with people in Pakistan, and the Pakistani government was interested in Muslim women who were found to be living in India. So if people were say, um, of the same communities, it, they weren't really, they didn't really care about this, um, about recovering such people. Um, the women, for their part, really had no choice in the matter. Appeals could not be referred to law courts. Um, initially, there was a lot of debate in the Legislative Assembly in India and the press. In India, there was concern um, that Pakistan was not recovering as many women as India was. Um, and was not allowing police and social workers into all the agreed upon areas. Some districts in Pakistan were closed. Um, Pakistan was not happy with the use of the military evacuation organization um, and the police, who in some cases were um, abductors themselves. So the constituent assembly debates swung between more chauvinistic um, nationalist and moderate views. Other voices stressed that some voices stressed that, um, some complained that Pakistan was not civilized because it was not recovering enough women, but other voices stressed that India was modern and secular, so must act on humanitarian obligations. Um, so there's sort of a continuity in some ways of the discourse. The question of women who wanted to stay was raised by some dissenting voices in, in the assembly, but this wasn't allowed to change the language of the recovery bill. As one legislator proclaimed, as descendants of Ram, we have to bring back every Sita that is alive. The Hindu nationalist press echoed this sort of rhetoric. The RSS mouthpiece organizer kept the image of Sita and Ravana alive in the press, and Pakistan itself was seen as a violator of Bharat Mata. Um, there were calls for increased militarization and denials that Muslim women were raped and abducted by Hindu and Sikh men. According to such views, it was Muslims in India who abducted women, not Indians, um, and in, Muslims in India were not accorded sort of the status of Indians in this discourse, right? So there's this kind of slippage. Um, so Muslims in India were abducting women, but Hindu and Sikh men in India were sheltering women. 
So this is the kind of um, Hindu, uh, the Hindu right-wing kind of discourse in the newspapers. Families were not always willing to accept the women back because they carried the stigma of communal violation. The governments estimated that 750, I'm sorry, 75,000 women were abducted, although numbers were contested. Um, Nehru and Gandhi made statements urging families to take women back. Pamphlets circulated comparing them to Sita. Again, um, the Sita and Ravana uh, parallel was very um, popular. The press in Pakistan similarly contained appeals for families to accept women back into their homes. The discourse seemed to be relatively similar um, in Pakistani press. Um, the Pakistan Times, for example, reported on the Inter-Dominion Conference of December 1947, stressing the importance of a quick recovery operation and acceptance of women back into their homes. Because, quote, no civilization can ignore with impunity the sanctity attaching to a woman's person. In all, about 30,000 women were recovered um, in an eight-year period. Some roughly 21 or 22,000 uh, Muslim women were recovered from India, and about uh, 8,000, 9,000 um, Hindu and Sikh women from um, Pakistan and sent across the border. Recovery was a fraught operation. Local police often warned families who had women from, um, quote unquote, the other community in advance. Social workers could use various tricks to try to find women. For example, going into a village and asking if there were women to buy. Um, Hindu and Sikh women recovered in Pakistan would be kept um, in a camp in Lahore and then typically sent across the border to Jalandhar. If they bought, brought children with them who had been born um, since the women were separated from their families, um, they had the choice of leaving them in Pakistan or they could proceed with their children to Jalandhar. Um, and then they would be given 15 days to decide what to do with the children. So a lot of younger women, for example, when they had to face their families who were coming to the camps to get them, they didn't have the courage to face their families with the children who had been born to their abductors. So they would actually leave the children behind in the camps when they went home sometimes if their families wouldn't accept them with the children. And there was an orphanage set up in Allahabad um, for such children. Um, so there was a lot of discussion um, in the legislative assembly and among social workers of whether women should be forced to leave their children behind or not. Where did the children belong? Um, would they be accepted in India? Would such children be accepted in Pakistan? Um, and it was not entirely resolved because, in part, um, while the Indian government felt, basically, that the women should be, uh, that the children should be left in Pakistan, actually, um, social workers were not willing to separate the women when they recovered them. So um, a number of social workers would actually said, you know, if you make us do this, we won't um, continue the work in the camps. We cannot separate women and children. The women have to make the decision for themselves. Um, which obviously was not a very pleasant decision to have to make. Um, also, uh, mass abortions, which were illegal, um, were performed, euphemistically referred to as safaya. Women who kept their children um, and widows often opted to stay in ashrams, sometimes because their families from whom they had been separated could not be located, but also um, because they might not be accepted back into their families. Thus, women might be displaced many times. 
Some were sold and changed hands several times after they were separated from their families and homes during the initial violence. Police and army, also charged in recovery, were often implicated in abducting and keeping or trading women, as well as killing them. Um, Kamla Ban narrates the sad return of 600 women um, kept in a camp by, um, supposedly by the Pakistani army. Um, she said they had prepared a party for these women um, with kind of fancy, like extra sort of special food. Um, and they were really excited to be recovering such a large number of women. It was, you know, her, her narrative is infused, with, is infused with a slightly um, kind of, she very, she kind of prevaricates between a very nationalistic tone and also um, uh, sympathy towards the women whom she's helping. So, so they had, they were, the um, administrators in the camp were very excited to be welcoming these women back. But they weren't prepared for what they saw when the women got there because they were in terrible shape. Apparently, the women had been um, basically used as prostitutes, and they hadn't been fed very well or received um, good medical care. So when they came back, they were some of them were starving, and some of their children were starving. And she was horrified because the food she prepared for them wasn't appropriate for people who were facing starvation, and she had nothing else to feed them. She couldn't acquire enough. She thought they needed like buttermilk and, and like lighter food. She couldn't get the food she needed. She had to give them the, re the heavier rich food she made and she noted that um, one of the babies even died in her arms. So there's a lot of these um, horrifying stories um, throughout uh, the narratives that have been um, acquired, that have been collected. Um, women, so as I was mentioning, women might pass through a series of transit camps from the district level where they were recovered to the larger camps in Lahore and Jalandhar, um, depending on which side you know, of the border they're coming from, and then on to rehabilita rehabilitation camps if families were not found. Cholera and dysentery were common even in the camps, food and medical supplies inadequate, shelters were cramped and spare. In West Pakistan, women students, such as from Islamia College in Lahore, and social workers were involved um, on both sides of the border in recovery operations. Um, some of the women who were involved had been displaced by partition themselves, um, both, and so they worked as both um, volunteers and paid workers. Fatima Jenna organized nursing volunteers through the Women's Relief Committee quote, for, for the noble cause of saving the lives of hundreds of their unfortunate sisters. The Pakistan Volunteer Service was formed in Lahore under the auspices, auspices of Begum, Liaquat Ali Khan, and Fatima Jinnah and others. Women were exhorted by the media to join and lend their supposedly natural caregiving skills to the destitute in the camps. Sewing and embroidery classes were also set up to teach useful and possibly marketable skills. In October 1947, the West Punjab government opened an industrial home for Muhajir widows. Um, for, for refugee widows to impart them skills such as sewing, weaving, nursing, and religious instruction so that they, quote, um, could earn an independent living in due course. Employment exchanges and mar marriage bureaus were also set up. Um, the marriage bureaus seem to have been um, somewhat unique on the West Punjab side um, of the re rehabilitation operations. Um, Lahore was the center of such activities. And um, even though officially more abducted women were returned to Pakistan from India than vice versa, we actually know less about their lives um, due to the limited scholarship, although um, there are articles by um, people like Farooq Khan and Pippa Virdi um, that are available. Um, in the East, the experience was a little bit different from Punjab as well. 
Um, the, the experience of the camps was slightly different in the East um, because in the early days, they were typically um, set up by the state government. The state government was more responsible with fun for funding them than the central government, and this was a dispute um, between the two levels of government. Um, so they were relatively underfunded um, because there wasn't as much money made available from the central government. Um, the movement of refugees was spread across time. Um, Professor Leaning um, had mentioned this last week. Um, there's peaks and valleys in the rate of movement. 1950 um, was a big um, period for refugees coming to West Pakistan, um, I'm sorry, to West Bengal, um, following riots in East Pakistan. Um, women had also been displaced in large numbers from villages during the Bengal famine of 1943, some of whom had returned, some of whom had not. Um, further, scholarship in Bangladesh um, has tended to focus um, since the 90s a bit more on the memory and rehabilitation of women who were raped during the War of Independence, um, referred to as the, weir, the war heroines or birangonas. Um, so the story of women who experienced partition, the violence of partition in Bangladesh um, is not as um, readily available um, in that because it's been a bit overshadowed in that sense. Um, in some cases, particularly from, for women from lower middle class and working class backgrounds, families could not be located and they had to remain in ashrams and camps in West Bengal. Um, women without adult family were referred to as public liabilities. But many of the women who ended up remaining in such camps on both sides in the West and the East were women who um, were widowed before or after partition, who some of the women were from um, less educated backgrounds and they just couldn't find their families. Um, and also women who were widowed but only had daughters, not sons. Um, this is something that um, um, Ravinder Kaur has mentioned in her research um, on widow ashrams um, around Delhi that the women who had daughters ended up living, staying in widow ashrams because um, they didn't have sons to provide for them later in their lives. Um, or they didn't, and they also had some hesitation to move in with their daughter's family when their daughters were married, whereas women who had sons, widows who had sons were not, didn't feel that same kind of like cultural hesitation of moving in with their sons. Um, so there are obviously many circumstances that would lead women to be designated, designated as public liabilities by the state. Abortions were also performed on women in the East. Um, they were um, especially because of the fear that women would not be accepted back into their families. Um, so this was, even though abortion was illegal, this was a common experience in both, um, in the camps of both um, the Eastern and Western spheres of partition. Despite what seems like somewhat of a more rosy picture of women's situation in the East, there were um, stories of coercion. Um, one example, um, a, a social worker, um, who worked with refugees in Delhi and in the Dandakaranya camp, which is in, was in present-day Jharkhand. She was sent from um, this boarding school for children um, in Delhi to go to the Dandakaranya camp and separate children from their mothers, so from m refugees from East Pakistan, and convince the mothers to give the children to her and let them be uh, raised, basically, in the boarding school so it was almost um, a permanent separation. The children wouldn't be returned until 
after their education was finished, by which time whether they would be able to get back in touch with their mothers was a question. Um, in the West, women um, didn't simply um, just kind of allow the state to push them around either. They could protest for months in the camps um, when they didn't want to be sent to India, for example. Um, Romeshwari Nehru came out as opposed to continuing the operations, um, in part because she said there was no follow-up system to make sure that um, the rights of returned women were protected, um, that they were in safe situations. So she resigned in July of 1949, and she um, refused to continue with recovery operations. Um, again, the Act was renewed in um, the Recovery Act was renewed in India until 1956, and then it was let to lapse. In 1957, Pakistan also repealed its own recovery legislation. On a practical level, um, one of the issues that um, scholars have encountered is that women from lower class and rural backgrounds might not feel like they have the authority to speak, especially to interviewers who come from outside, who come from the West or come from um, Delhi or Lahore or like sort of a big metropolis um, and seem to have access to a cosmopolitan world that um, the, the women who are interviewed don't have access to. So there can be this power differential, but also um, an issue of authority, who can speak. Um, so, for example, Pippa Virdi describes interviewing an older partition refugee, um, a woman from modest circumstances living in Lahore. Um, during the interview experience, her brother ended up answering all the interview questions with the woman's consent. Um, the woman declared, what can I say? I don't recall anything. Several of the women Virdi interviewed said they could not offer much information because they didn't know, quote, the whole picture since they were confined to the home. And for them, partition in their understanding was a political event that could be better explained by their male relatives who had access to the public sphere and they were able to, and access to such knowledge. Lack of education, Virdi surmises, and lack of access reinforced women's hesitation in speaking about a public or political event. Even so, she found that educated and cosmopolitan women also felt the need to avoid mentioning the specifics of violence. Obviously, who's doing the interviewing and the relationship to the person recounting their experience, who is also present, um, the time and the place of the interview matters in terms of what can be said or what is said. Urvashi um, Butalia writes, the initial assumption I brought to my search was a simple one. The history of partition as I knew it made no mention of women. As a woman and a feminist, I would set out to find women in partition, and once I did, I would attempt to make them visible. That would, in a sense, complete an incomplete picture. There are, of course, no complete pictures. Um, this I know now. Everyone who makes one draws it afresh. Every time, retrospectively, the picture changes. Who you are, where you come from, who you're talking to, when you talk to them, where you talk to them, what you listen to, what they choose to tell you. All of these affect the picture you draw.